Well, good afternoon. Thank you for joining Dan and I. Dan's back from Chihuahua, and uh, that's not a puppy he got. That's a, a beautiful community in Mexico that he's just been visiting. Um, so glad to have you back. And uh, you want to say anything about your brief time there, or just maybe not now? But okay. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. Well, let's get into the questions. Um, we've got. Let's see. So far, we got uh, four good questions so far that I can see here. So the first question is: Would you please share your thoughts on the passage in First Corinthians eleven twenty-seven through thirty-four, particularly verse thirty, where it says, "For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep." I read the other verses. Uh, 27 through 30, in order to have context. However, that only provoked more questions. I would appreciate your insights. Thank you. Uh, again, that's 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 24. And um, it's interesting, I've been all over 1 Corinthians 10 uh, and 11 this past week, this, this, this current week, actually. And uh, so... You know, 1 Corinthians 10 is Paul uh, saying to the Corinthians, don't be complacent because the children of Israel had a parallel point in their journey where they were baptized into Moses through the cloud and through the sea. They drank the same spiritual drink. They had the same spiritual food. And they had the rock that followed them. But with many of them, God was not well pleased. And Paul is, of course, still speaking of uh, his theme throughout the first epistle to the Corinthian church, which is division uh, versus unity. And, um, and he segues from that, that, that chapter 10, uh, where he talks about the children of Israel and their time in the wilderness. And then he goes into chapter 11, be imitators of me. And he starts to give the family order. He actually introduces the Lord's Supper, then he transitions into order of relationships, and then he goes back into um, family order. Uh, so, um, you know, he's talking about, uh, or he goes back into the Lord's Supper, rather. I, I said it goes back into family order, goes back into the <coughs> Lord's Supper. I think it's, it's here in verse 23 that he says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, also after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he goes, he says, So often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge or discern rightly the body of the Lord. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep, which is death. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, brethren, when you come together, eat Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. And he talks about spiritual gifts. So I think the question is, why is Paul saying that people are going to be weak and sick and perhaps die because they don't discern the Lord's body in communion? How, how, how do those things connect? I just read the scripture, now you can give the answer. <laughs> That's easy. Well, I guess on the face of it, it seems to me like he's pointing out that there is an authenticity, an honesty, a sincerity that is expected of anybody who would participate in this covenant with the Lord. And I think, uh, you know, we see uh, communion as being a commemoration of and a rededication to our vow of commitment that's made at baptism. Uh, 
And going back to that, you know, you think of First Peter 3.21, where he says, Baptism now saves us, not the washing of the body from the filth of the flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. So that, that term, good conscience, certainly seems to indicate that there has to be, there can be no duplicity in this. There can be no uh, stain of unconfessed sin in this. There has to be an, an honesty uh, in which this covenant is made. Otherwise, it's not being made in good faith. And um, one thinks of disturbing examples like uh, Ananias and Sapphira and how they come they come and present as if they are um, making a certain level of sacrifice and yet they've kept back part of the price without without making that plain. There's something duplicitous about it and and how seriously the Lord himself looked upon that. And I think that uh, in this celebration of this, this renewing of the covenant, uh, that same level of of godly fear should be upon us that we should, he tells us that there's two things we're doing here that we must do. We must examine ourselves to make sure that we partake in a worthy manner, that we're not, that we're not um, partaking of this in a fraudulent manner, which would be to present that we are giving a full sacrifice when in fact there's something we're holding back or hiding. Um, and also, he mentions uh, discerning the body. And so I think the context from the chapter before makes clear that we are the body of Christ. Right. So communion is not merely a remembrance of Christ's individual body that was sacrificed 2,000 years ago, although it is certainly that. We are remembering His sacrifice that is the basis for all sacrifice that has followed. But if we are that one loaf, then it is the, the, the present tense body that we can see and touch, <laughs> the church that is His body on the earth, that is also we are remembering, we are honoring, we are expressing our gratitude for, our, our rededication to. So there's a, there's a, it seems like there's a mandate upon us here that we examine our own hearts and that we discern that the people with whom we are taking this communion do constitute the body of Christ and that we recognize our proper relationship to them in an order that God has composed, just as He wills. And that seems to accord with His, his concern and His instruction throughout the whole letter, that there be no divisions among you. Mm -hmm. And you're quoting there in, in chapter 10, He says, I speak to wise men, judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Okay, so He says that that to, to break this bread at communion is to share or partake of the body of Christ. And you say individually, as when he was here, or corporately, and we say yes. Mm -hmm. And then he says in verse 17, Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, and we all partake of the one bread. And then he says, Look to the nation of Israel as if this is fulfilling what they were going through at the Passover and such. Mm -hmm. So it does seem that central to his concern is that they discern the Lord's body in its corporate reality, not just discern what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, and that they discern that there is no schism or division among them, but that they are coming to be part of that one loaf and that, that one body. Um, and that even accords with the word communion that he's using, the word koinonia, that John is using in 1 John where he says, if, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have koinonia, we have communion with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, is cleansing us from all sin in that environment of oneness, of koinonia, of communion with one another. So... I mean, I, I guess just to summarize the answer, it seems like Paul is saying here that <coughs> if, if we treat the body of Christ in its corporate form as a common thing, uh, to quote the, the writer of Hebrews, or if we don't discern the sacredness of what God's called us to be a part of and, and, and enter into that fellowship with, in a worthy manner, 
then we are drinking judgment unto ourselves. You know, the, the communion is the New Testament equivalent of the Passover, and the Passover was the time when they were to get out all the leaven, you know, and, and purge the leaven of hypocrisy, of pretense, of purporting one thing but harboring something else in our hearts. So I think that does, I think that... And if, if the question was intended to be specifically about the consequences for this reason, many are weak and many are sick and, and many sleep, um, I don't purport to know everything that that might be referring to, but I think on, on the face of it, it seems like there are consequences for what we do. And, and once again, pointing back to Ananias and Sapphira, the consequences seem very real yeah. for being hypocritical towards your covenant with the Lord and His people. Yeah. Okay, well, the next question is, um, it says, Howdy, y'all. That's a good start. Um, howdy. Uh, Thank you, brothers, for this ministry, for taking the time and showing love, patience, and wisdom. We always watch the broadcast from Argentina. Well, howdy to y'all in Argentina. Um, in Matthew 22, 1 through 14, there is a very interesting parable. I would appreciate hearing your thoughts on verses 11 through 14. Um, and so I don't know that we can really give 11 through 14 without uh, giving a little bit more context. So obviously, Matthew 22 starts with, I mean, Matthew 21 starts with the triumphal entry the parable of the barren fig tree, which we've discussed before, and God, uh, Christ's authority challenged. And then in, in verse 28, he does the parable of the two sons, showing a willingness to obey is better than the profession. Then he goes into the parable of the landowner, where um, there's this, this tension, and, 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 he's, and he's showing that when he finally sends his son, they don't like that God... The Pharisees have basically taken the place of God. They've, they're acting like the landowner, but in fact, they're just the servants of the landowner. So when he finally sends his son, they kill him. This is all leading up to the Lord's crucifixion. Uh, in, in, verse, in chapter 22, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. <laughs> and... If the king is God the Father, the son is Jesus, and the wedding feast is between Jesus and the bride of Christ, the, the bride of the, of the Lamb. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. So twice he, go, he reaches to those who have been invited. And this is speaking of the Jewish people, in this instance, who, who had the, the invitation of God's covenant of, of, of the law and of salvation prior to the coming of Christ. And so they had the invitation. They should have been there. Um, and this parallels Romans 9, in the first verses of Romans 9. So he sends out the second invitation to those who have been invited. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast, which is to say be part of this union between Christ and His people. But they paid no attention and went their own way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. This is a prophecy that God is going to allow a judgment to come on those who rejected Jesus. And ultimately, setting their city on fire was Titus and his men throwing the, the log into the temple and the whole thing catching on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main highways, 
as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And this is the idea of Paul saying, I am going to the Gentiles. This is the Lord turning to people who did not have a generational invite <laughs> to the wedding feast. Uh, go into the highways and invite there um, to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. <laughs> so they're bringing in this broad group of people who are going to be part of the body of Christ. And, and they bring them all in, some that are good and some that are not good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to, them, said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding garments or, or clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. And I think that what he's... The metaphor is basically saying that God is going to turn away from the Jewish people who do not respond to the call and He is going to reach to whosoever will and He's going to bring in a lot of people, but then there are going to be some people who don't come in to this relationship with the Lord with the appropriate honor and participation in the covenant. And in, in, in Revelations, it says that the white garments are the righteous acts of the saints, and those seem to be the wedding garments. And so there are people who are going to imagine that God is just, oh, so inclusive that there's room for me too, even though I have not prepared myself, made myself ready for this, this union with the Lord. And so the Lord is saying, on the one hand, I'm not going to wait for the guests who were invited and didn't come. I'm going to bring in a lot of people. But on the other hand, I'm not going to lower the standards of sanctification and oneness that we're going to have at this wonderful wedding feast. And so he asks the man, where are your wedding garments? Where are the white garments, which are the righteous acts of the saints? Why haven't you readied yourself? He says, Paul says to the, that he's wanting to present the church a bride without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. No blemish. So, so this indicates someone who thought, God's just so loving and inclusive, I'm going to be part of it and I'll fit in with the crowd even though I'm, I'm filthy in, my, in, my, in the garments that are not the white garments of the, of the wedding. And the Lord is saying, just because I've got a big heart and I'm willing to bring in these who weren't originally invited does not mean I'm going to lower the standard. You're, we're going to all have to have made ourselves ready. Mm -hmm. Is that how you? I would, yeah. And I, I think there's a couple other places in the New, several other places where the New Testament talks about being clothed mm -hmm. and where Paul tells the Galatians, as many of you as were baptized have put on Christ. Mm -hmm. You know, it talks about in Corinthians about putting on the new man, mm -hmm. having shed the old man. Mm -hmm. um, and Peter tells us that we have to be clothed in humility mm -hmm. towards one another. So all of these indicate a kind of sanctification, a commitment, a repentance, a godly character. Um, and I think, so I think there yeah. may be some really specific interpretation we could put to the, the parable of the wedding feast, but I think there are many ways in which our clothing is our identity statement. Yeah. I mean, that's still true today, that your, your, your clothing functions more as an, an identity, which, which culture you identify with than anything anything else. That's the primary function of dress. Yeah. And so if the wedding garments are indicating, you know, who who do you identify with? Right. What who do you belong to? Right. You know, then then it's a question of does this person belong here? Right. You're not dressed like you belong here. Right. <laughs> you, you haven't taken on the identity. You haven't put off the old man and put on the new man, which is Christ. Right. You haven't made the commitment, you're not worthy to be part of this. Amen. It's interesting that at the birthday of the church, when Jesus is predicting and pointing toward the, the launch of the church, He tells them to tarry in Jerusalem. He says, And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city of Jerusalem until you are clothed with power 
from on high, mm. indicating that's the first place I think where where this all of these others that Paul is mentioning is indicating that we're going to have this new identity. We're going to be we're going to be clad, we're going to be wrapped, we're going to be hidden with Christ and God. Mm. Amen. So we need to be clothed with power. We need to be clothed with Christ. We need to have the righteous garments of the saints, which are which can only come through the power of the Spirit. Okay. What is the community's view on pharmaceuticals? Do you have any feelings on the Greek word pharmakeia in the New Testament, given its use for the word witchcraft or sorcery and so forth? Pharmakeia shows up in, in Revelations a couple times, and it shows up in Galatians. Uh, in Acts, um, it's a it's a word that shows up a couple times, and i I think that um, I think that the question is th there can be a little bit of a confusion uh, in in the way of interpretation, but I think people are saying something like this: We know the Bible speaks against pharmakeia, and we know that pharmakeia is the root word of our word, our English word pharmacy or pharmaceuticals. So is the Bible speaking against the use of pharmaceutical drugs? And, uh, and, and uh, I think that's probably the question. And I think there are people who have said that that is the case. Um, if you look at pharmakeia in some of the um, lexicons or um, dictionaries, it says that it can refer to, it says it's the use of, of medicine, drugs, or spells, or poisoning. And it says that, in the, it quotes the Septuagint and its, and its references of the Old Testament. It says, in sorcery, the use of drugs, whether simple or potent, was generally accompanied by incantations and appeals to the occult powers with the provision of various charms. Uh, these were to keep the applicant or patient protected from demons, but was more likely to impress the applicant with the mysterious powers of the sorcerer. <laughs> so, I would say that it's a stretch, it's, it would be an inappropriate stretch to say that whatever these sorcerers were was using was necessarily you know in terms of medicines or potions that was the sorcery instead they're using medicines and potions in the sorcery but we see places in the scripture where medicine is recommended and used aloud or, or even recommended by the lord so isaiah is told to to, to put a poultice uh, on himself because of some condition, and I, I believe I have that right. Um, in a manner of speaking, uh, Timothy is told to take wine for his stomach. Um, the uh, the the woman with the issue of blood, we are told, had exhausted all her savings on physicians, and we're and Luke is called. The, the physician, Luke the physician. He's not called Luke the former physician. He's called Luke the physician, which is interesting. So it would seem that pharmakeia is not, cannot be described simply as the use of a medicine, but it has to be described as a practice of sorcery that involved spells and demonic occult practices that also included medicine. It's not pharmakeia because it includes medicine. It's pharmakeia because of its sorcery. And, and therefore, it's a leap to say medicine is sorcery because that was part of the process. And I think that, um, I think that you know, to the pure, all things are pure. I think that this starts a question of what constitutes a medicine. You know, mm -hmm. what is medicine and, and, and does the Bible differentiate between kinds of medicine? I, I don't see that it does. And some of the warnings against the use of medicine, such as with Asa regarding his feet, he's not judged that he used medicine, and it is called that. 
uh, which the Septuagint translates as pharmakeia. <laughs> sure. But he's not judged because he used medicine. He's judged because he did it before consulting the Lord. So this starts to become a, an important insight into us that medicine has its place, but it's not supposed to come ahead of or before the Lord. We're not supposed to consult the physicians before we've consulted the great physician, and both for healing, but also for, for meaning and for instruction from the Lord. So I guess I'm probably rambling a little bit, but these are some... You know, I think the question is, what is our community's view on it? Um, in terms of in practice, uh, we've never had we've never had some you know ordinance that we can or can't use this or that or or the other thing. But our view on the whole subject would be, we've got to be obedient to God, and our faith and our trust has got to be in Him. And if there are medicines, whether those be herbs or there's all kinds of things that we might do in order to uh, try to help with problems with our bodies. Um, but if we're trusting in those things or turning first to those things, then we've got something out of line in our faith. Um, but to, to simply make some kind of principle uh, out of it that says we can't, you know, we, we can use it as long as it doesn't include these ingredients or whatever, it would just runs a great risk of putting people in a position where we're trusting a principle instead of needing to tune into the Spirit. So, um, Yes, our people have used pharmaceuticals from time to time. We are certainly very cautious about them. Um, and I, I think the, the word connection is with pharmakeia and sorcery is noteworthy, especially when we start considering um, the powers associated with illicit drugs mm -hmm. and all of the ways that those things are used to uh, alter people's consciousness and put them in touch with uh, spiritual powers and all of those kinds of things. There, there is a connection there. Does that translate, you know, apples to apples to, uh, to something that you may need for your health? Uh, I, it would seem there'd be a distinction there. To and I think it's a little bit arbitrary and, and inconsistent to draw the line between naturopathic and allopathic. Mm. I don't know that that line really exists either in, in our experience or in the scripture, it's like or in history. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're to look at some of the drugs, you got marijuana. That's an herb. You've got um, mushrooms. That's mm. a plant. That's where psilocybin is coming from. Yeah, you know, LSD and things like that are are, are basically capturing the the properties of a mushroom and, yeah. and so on and so forth. Alcohol is a natural product. Alcohol is a is an herbal remedy. One might say. <laughs> Uh, that's a stretch, but uh, it, the key is not to to draw some line and say that this is bad and that is bad. The only thing that's good is whatsoever is of faith, and faith comes by hearing the word of God. So if we have a relationship with God and we and we let Him speak to us, then our hearts can have faith. Whether He's telling us to take a little wine for our stomach, and I don't mean that literally, but I mean taking some sort of medicine for our stomach, or He's telling us to 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 do something for our feet or whatever, we want to do it in faith. And we want to do it because we feel that's what the Lord is having us to do. And, and when, when medicine becomes connected to and an expression of our relationship with God, it's, it's part of his, his plan, it's part of His provision. When it becomes our substitute instead of our relationship with God, there seems to be a lot of biblical challenges to that approach. And that's what we would want to avoid. But mm -hmm. we have, you know, people in our fellowship have taken, have, have felt the Lord prompting them or giving them guidance to take all manner of medicines. Um, we don't obviously practice illicit drugs, but in terms of medicines that would be considered allopathic or naturopathic or homeopathic, the main thing is let's do it in faith. Let's do it without our conscience condemning us. And let's do it because we feel the Lord telling us that this is the way. Okay, so the next question, hello, and before I ask my question, I just want to say thank you so much for this ministry and forum and making this happen week after week. I realize there are even many people behind the scenes that we don't see to help make this happen. So right now, behind the scenes, we've got Brother Randy Schaefer, and we've got Jed Owen, and Brother Andrew Taylor, and who's behind that scene? Yeah. 
Ben Owen. So I'm just giving a shout out to those who really do work behind the scenes and appreciate them. They're as important as anything else because we wouldn't be able to make this, we wouldn't be able to be understood here. Okay, so can you give some background on polygamy within the Bible? It seems to have been normal and a cultural accepted practice, especially in the times of the Old Testament. At what point and how did this change to monogamy? Thank you again and God bless you all. Amen. Well, thank you for the question. And I think that in the days in which we live, these things that have perhaps seemed settled in the past are going to become probably more topics of conversation mm -hmm. when, when we no longer can say that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. And when women can marry women and men can marry men, then what is the basis for the Supreme Court claiming that polygamy can't occur? It would seem that in the future, that's going to be undone if they're going to be consistent. Um, in terms of the Bible, um, we would say that as a general rubric, we see that God is leading His people on a progressive journey that moves t toward His pattern and toward holiness and toward a, a better expression of His design in relationships. And so we see certain things with Abraham and then we can see the Lord is not so happy with those things and mm -hmm. it's moving in the right direction. And, but we can see that across generations. And I think that the first place in the Bible where uh, it's pretty clear is the Apostle Paul. And he says that an elder must be the husband of only one wife. And this seems to be suggesting, I don't know that he was prohibiting all other expressions in the church, but it does seem to be expressing that God had an ideal here. And we think that we would say that that ideal is, is most clearly seen in the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. God makes a man and he does not make, does not take out two ribs nor make two women out of one rib. He takes out one rib and he makes one woman. And it would seem that the, the purpose that God has given for the marriage design is as much about children and generational continuity and faithfulness as anything. And, and every study and indication would confirm that one man and one woman is the healthiest place and environment for children and for the flourishing of love in that environment. So in terms of history, I don't know. I mean, do you have any, I don't know where it kind of became taboo, but I imagine it started with Paul. I don't know. I don't know what what the culture really looked like. I don't recall that we see many examples of it in the New Testament. No. Even amongst people that Jesus is interacting with, I don't recall uh, if there's examples of it there. So I, it may have already been out of moved Judaism. out of the out of the culture through the progression of Judaism, yeah. which, as you mentioned, we do see God establishing a pattern in the beginning, and right. it was one man right. and one woman. Right. And it's not hard to imagine how, as things, as people leave God, things get into disarray, and they follow a more natural course, right. where people are behaving like animals, right. then we're going to see constructs of relationships that look more like the animal kingdom right. and are taking people away from their consciousness of God yeah. and his higher purpose in reproduction and all of those things. Mm -hmm. So um, what we also see in the Old Testament, as you mentioned, God is teaching people like Abraham um, along the way that, no, you shouldn't have taken your maidservant and, mm -hmm. and so forth. We also see over and over again the results the bad fruit of polygamy, mm -hmm. where we have these multiple wives, and in a sense, we could say, perhaps God is winking on that, mm -hmm. on that in, uh, inversion or extrapolation of his, of his design, um, and he's allowing it. But we see constant problems: yeah. the rivalry between the women, and then the rivalry between their children, and and all of this. The fruit of it is bad from start to finish. Yeah. Um, we see this happening with Solomon and all his wives taking him away from God. And I mean, it's just over and over and over again, we don't see good fruit from it. He, he had a couple, too. I mean, uh, yes, Solomon, he did. My goodness. He kind of overdid it, I think, a little bit. But. Even look at the Lord's words and, and just how Jesus built arguments of the, for the resurrection on grammar and in his discussion with the Pharisees. And, and you look at his words and the grammar of his words, he says, for this reason, a man 
shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. Mm-hmm. It's not wives, it's man and wife, it's woman and man. It's not, the mm-hmm. ideal is never presented to us. There's nothing favorable said about it. No. Um, so it does seem like um, God was always moving us in this direction and, and, and the, the, where the word is specific, it is against it. Doesn't he say, I don't know if there's an argument to be made out of this, but Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, I have betrothed you to one husband, Yes, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Yeah. The, the whole idea of purity, yeah. one master, one Lord, yeah. one wife, yeah. you know, uh, that there's not division or duplicity in relationship would seem to be borne out in principle by monogamy. Yeah, and it, it certainly is that the the, the body of Christ, he says there is one body, and the, the, the term body of Christ is, is another way of describing the bride of Christ. Um, and there's never, it's never spoken of as the brides of Christ, even hmm. though I've occasionally heard some remarkable Christians try to infer that. Um, it is the bride of Christ. Okay, greetings from Virginia, brothers. I have a nonviolence question. I believe with the scripture that God is love and life. And so how do we reconcile this with the violence of the Am I on the right one? Yeah, the violence of the Old Testament. Okay, I'm I'm sorry I lost my place a little bit. I understand that it was a type and shadow of the reality to come in Christ and also understand that many of the battles were led out by angels and not by God directly. That being said, are there some examples where God directly commands violence through a prophet in the Old Testament? Did God directly command the slaughter of the Amalekites or other people groups? If so, how do we reconcile this with our God who is love and life? Thank you so much for your insight. I will say that I answered this question almost verbatim last week. Um, so. I guess it might be your turn. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't here last week. I didn't get to hear your answer. (laughs) You you know the answer better than I do. I mean, I guess in essence, we would say that the Bible clearly shows that God was not relating with the Old Testament believers personally and directly but he was relating with them through the deputies or emissaries of angels. And this is seen in the conquest of Canaan, where there is an angel for Israel who stays with them all the way through. And this is seen in Stephen and Paul's depiction of the law, that it was given through angels, through the mediators of angels. And they're putting some distance, showing that the God of love was not directly expressing that violence. And even if it says Yahweh commanded or God said, that can be explained in the fact that he says, I put my name in the angel. So do all that he says, for he will not forgive your sins or blot out your transgressions. And then we can also see that Hebrew itself can can use causative verbs in ways that can be taken too literally. So it can say God said or God did and simply mean that God really allowed. And an example of that is uh, Job where the devil comes and asks God to permit him to hurt Job. And God says, you can, but don't hurt his flesh. The devil comes back and God says to the devil, How is it that you incited me against Job? Hmm. So God is taking credit for having done something that we know in the specific explanation was actually done by the devil. And we have this even more clearly in the parallel of David numbering Israel, whether in Chronicles or Samuel, where he says, David, the Satan inspired or incited David to number Israel. And then the other one says, and the anger of the Lord incited Mm -hmm. David to number Israel. And so what we're saying is that we don't see God in his personal intent toward us, except by exception and then in the life of Jesus Christ. We see a contrast where he says he speaks to Moses face to face, but not the children of Israel. So all of this wrath 
is God, but it's God through angels. It's God through an Elohim. It's God through, it's, he's called Yahweh of hosts or God of heaven's armies. So they're not really do- relating directly with the, Lord, with the personal God revealing his essential nature. They're re- relating with those outer uh, uh, forces that protect and define what God is not. I think it's helpful to consider the laws of the universe that were set in motion by a God who is truth, and therefore there is sowing and reaping. You know, there is uh, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Those are, we consider those to be laws of physics, but if those things also apply in the moral realm, then there is going to be lines. Uh, if there is no distinction between good and evil, then you, you don't really... You can't have a definition of a God who is good without having some definition of where he is not. Yes. But to then say that everything that happens in the universe whereupon judgment falls upon what is not God was personally done by God is as ridiculous on one level as saying that, you know, because the law of gravity exists in the world, we can point to its positive purpose. Um, If we didn't have gravity, we wouldn't be sitting here. Um, there would be chaos in the world. In fact, it is for our great good that there is such a thing as the law of gravity. Yes. Um, it makes everything possible for life. Amen. And yet, if I go and I jump off a cliff yeah. um, and I hit the bottom and I die, did God kill me? Because God put this law of gravity in, in effect. So in a manner of speaking, we could say that. But yes, it wouldn't be- we could. It wouldn't be true in another way of seeing Exactly, because it wouldn't express God's personal intent. It would simply express the result of my own actions. And that there are, there are laws in the world, there are beings in the world that operate according to those principles, and angels are included in those beings. But it's not only angels. If you go and you um, mess with a grizzly bear cub, and that mama comes roaring out of the cave and takes your head off, did God kill you because God created that grizzly bear to protect its baby? Or did you violate an order that incensed the wrath of another being that was created by God, uh, and yet you have disrupted that order, and so you have engaged the active reaction of another being against that? And we, we speak of the angels as guardians of the Lord's honor. There's, you, you see them functioning throughout Scripture to enact the will of the Lord in the sense that, okay, this is right, this is wrong, this is what happens when you hit the bottom, when you jump off a cliff, this is what happens when you mess with the grizzly bear club, cub, and so we see that happening uh, through the angels. And I think even, um, even uh, human beings function in this realm, uh, especially in the Old Testament, human beings that are not regenerated and, and connected to God's heart, having been born again and received of His nature, we see human beings and the institutions that they, that they create, states and governments and so forth, operating in some of those same capacities mm-hmm. where the law is coming through human beings. And so judgment is happening through mm-hmm. human beings, even upon one another. And in, in one sense, it's righteous. Mm-hmm. In one sense, it has to be right. that, that it is such is the case. And yet, does it express God's heart? No. We, we, hear, we have abundant evidence in the Scripture, even in those glimpses throughout the Old Testament, that this God is different. Mm-hmm. This God is love. This God's plan for humanity excludes all of that. Mm-hmm. Will there be violence in heaven? No. Will there be wrath in heaven? No. no. So we know that in the perfect world, when all of this is done away with, there will be no justice in heaven. Yeah. For there will be no need, in essence, for justice. So justice and wrath and anger cannot be part of God's essential nature. Because if they're they not going, if yeah. they're not going, they didn't exist before this world. Yeah. They can't exist after this world. They're not going to be in that place of perfection. So God has nothing to do with them, in a sense. They simply delineate where God is not. Yeah. And that's what hell is. Yeah. Where there is no God. Yeah. Punished away from the presence of the Lord. Yeah. So we're saying that there is a legitimate sense in which we can blame God, we can credit God with having created the world and the creatures thereof that work in concert toward his ultimate purpose and toward our ultimate redemption. And we can say God did this and God did that. 
but we can say that while it still be while it still remains true that God did not personally intervene to contrive this as an expression of his essential nature that it, it's God operating or allowing the function of the world that he created so good when God rested he didn't take a nap he who mm -hmm. keeps Israel never slumbers or sleeps but when he rested it means that he acquiesced to the things he had set in motion. And when he rested, he said, Kitov, Kitov, it is so good, so good. And man's actions made it so bad. And then when we are reaping the, the, the counteractions of the world we broke, we don't blame God. It's like if I, if I give someone a picture or even a glass of water, but if I give someone a glass of water and they shatter it and, and break their hand with the, with the cup, they can say, Ossie's cup did this to me. But in what sense? In, 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 did I come and do that to you? Mm -hmm. or, or did you break something and it starts, you start reaping what you sowed? And the law of, of, of justice is the reaping and sow, sowing and reaping. And that's, that's something terrible when we're reaping the wrong that we sowed. But it is also the law of life. Because if you just took that law out of the world, there would be no new life because mm -hmm. that's that's what causes us to have children that's what causes us to have new trees and plants and so on and so forth so it is the law of life it's just the power of life was given to us and we used it to multiply the power of death mm -hmm. and so that's what jesus absorbed in himself at the cross was that harvest of judgment that we had filled the barn with so to speak mm. so Amen. I hope that's helpful. I hope that starts to give a framework. We're giving a very brief, quick glossary or, uh, or summary, I'm sorry, of, of, a, of a topic that uh, you can delve into over hundreds of pages that examine this and look at this from many different angles. So pardon us if we're, if we're kind of going fast and furious here. That's not our intention. It's just we're trying to be sensitive to time. Okay. So is that the last question? All right. Well, Anything else? Any other topics? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. Well, thank you all for tuning in and, and uh, sending in your questions. Hopefully this was edifying. And again, we've answered this violence question quite a few times, so um, including last week. So I think it was actually fuller and better this week, so I'm glad for that. Um, Did you guys discuss the example of what happens when David numbers Israel last week? Because that to me is a an interesting example. So th this is actually on the heels of what you mentioned, where where in the one account it says that Yahweh incited, or the the anger of Yahweh incited David to number Israel, and on the other it says clearly that Satan incited Israel. So helping us to understand that when we see the wrath of the Lord or the Lord himself in, in instigating things, that we may simply be seeing an example of how the Lord is allowing even Satan himself to be an instrument of, of justice. But anyway, so in the aftermath of that, David follows the inciting of Satan and yields to his own pride and everything else that was appealed to there, and he numbers the children of Israel. And then the Lord comes and, and says there's going to have to be consequences to this. And um, and then it says that when when David David chooses, you know, he he actually gives him a choice of punishments, which is, you know, am I going to fall into? The, David makes his famous statement, you know, I'd rather fall into the hands of God. Yes. Why? Because he's merciful, than into the hands of men. And so he makes his choice that he wants to fall into the hands of the Lord. And and so, but what happens? Is it the Lord who comes down and starts slaughtering the children of Israel? No, it says clearly the that there isn't the angel of the Lord yeah. comes down and is the the people are dying by the the plague, I think it was, and uh, David is in distress and he says, you know, I know I have sinned, but these sheep, what have they done? You know, he was the man after God's own heart, and it says when the Lord saw that that he relented, yeah. and the Lord Himself said, it is enough, stop your hand to the angel with the sword. And I just think it's a picture of God's direct intervention where we see His heart Amen. as opposed to this justice yes. that is happening, that is the equal and opposite reaction to the yeah. sin. There is judgment coming, yeah. and not only upon David, but upon others. And, and our sin does bring judgment on others because it's like that nuclear 
reaction. You rupture it in one place and it chain reactions happen in other places. And so those things do happen, but then we see the heart of God coming through and saying, there's got to, I, I'm going to stop this. And it may be like us jumping off the cliff and God catching us a, yeah. in a tree branch on the way down or whatever. Yeah. And we, yeah. I'm just saying that yeah. to reconcile the New Testament and the picture we see in Jesus Christ, who is the full expression yeah. of His exact essence, yeah. Hebrews 1 tells us. Yeah. The rest of it was in bits and pieces. The yeah. rest of it was partial. It was only from one angle. It wasn't seeing yeah. the face of God. It was seeing His shadow. Amen. Which a shadow, what is a shadow? But it's only, it's the outline of what is not. Yes. You can't discern features in a shadow. You can only discern what it's not. You just see an outline. But when we see the face of God yeah. in Jesus Christ, Amen. we see nothing like this. Amen. We see only mercy and love and forbearance and patience. We see anger. Yeah. We see, we see indignation, but we don't see personal inaction of, of final consequence no. against those things. We see a picture of mercy and grace. So to reconcile that with the Old Testament is everybody's problem. Yeah. It's not just the problem of those who yeah. believe in Christian nonviolence. Yeah. It, it must be explained one way or another. Yeah. If you would if you would have violence be legitimate for a Christian, you I would argue you've got a lot more scripture yeah. in the New Testament to contend with yeah. than trying to reconcile these seeming anomalies with the Old Testament. Amen. So, uh, I just think we see the picture of God absolutely in Jesus Christ. Amen. That is the clearest, most expressive image of God that we Amen. can possibly see. And everything else by comparison is darkness and blindness. John said, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son of God in the bosom of the Father, He has revealed Him. Yeah. And it wasn't just that, He didn't just say that He, he um, that we have seen Him. He said He has revealed Him. <laughs> and yeah. Paul said, Jesus is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over yeah. all creation, and that's obviously Hebrews 1. So those are three scriptures that confirm that everything else by comparison is blindness and darkness compared to what we see of God's character in His Son, Jesus Christ. And how did the people in the New Testament, from Jesus on, how did they behave yeah. once they had been filled with the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Yeah. How did they behave? Yeah. What does the record of the New Testament reflect? What does even the historical record reflect? Yeah. There is no instance in any historical record of anybody who named themselves as a Christian ever using violence for any purpose, even in self-defense or in defense of family members, for 175 years after Christ. That's the first time even a hint of that appears. So uh, we know how the apostles understood this Amen. and how they practiced it. And Amen. that ought to be a guide for us, I think. Amen. Yeah, Paul, Paul's pretty clear in Romans 12. It's not just they say, oh, that was for the Jews, the Beatitudes. Well, read Romans 12 and many other scriptures that, mm -hmm. that confirm that we are not supposed to repay evil with evil. Yeah, but we do not wage war as the world does. Amen. Okay, well, anything else come in? Okay, well, that's it. That's a wrap. Lord willing, you'll see us next week. God bless you.